Some people may be shocked to hear that when I was in high school, I was a student body officer. It may shock you a little less if you find out that I was student body historian. History has kind of always been a passion of mine. One of my jobs as student body historian was to make a scrapbook of the events that happened that year. Because apparently the yearbook didn't already fill that job enough or something. So I made this scrapbook that was then put into a vault in the back of the American Fork High School library for some other future student body historian to see and wonder why the crap we were doing this. But I actually had a really fun and cool experience being student body historian because as it happened, my senior year was the centennial celebration of American Fork High School. That being the case, I decided it would be kind of cool for my scrapbook if I went back through as many of the old yearbooks from American Fork High that I could find. So I went to the local city library and asked for their special collections. There's something kind of cool about being admitted into this restricted section that, that only you are allowed to be looking at. It was kind of exciting for an 18-year-old guy who was sort of into history. I pulled out as many of the old American Fork High yearbooks as I could find. And they went back as early as 1917. So as I was pouring through these yearbooks and marveling at all the different hairstyles and clothing fashions that I recognized from history, I ran into something pretty interesting. I stumbled at one point on a yearbook from about the year 1927. And as I was flipping through and seeing all the 20s paraphernalia and the interesting way of wording things, my eye was suddenly drawn to the corners of the pages. Each page had kind of a decorative border on it, and in each corner there was just a little emblem that kind of tied the border together. And I realized that symbol was a swastika. I was immediately appalled and almost wanted to throw the book across the room, and then I realized 1927. Wasn't Adolf Hitler failing at being an artist at that point? No one had ever heard of him. What did the swastika mean at that point? Obviously, it was innocuous enough to put into the corners of a yearbook in a high school. Turns out that prior to the Nazis co-opting the swastika as an emblem of fear and hatred, the symbol we so loathe today, at the time it was just another symbol, another emblem, another nice little design that people used, sort of like the fleur-de-lis Today, it might mean some things to some people, but generally speaking, it's just an image we're used to seeing. But in 1933 through 1935, somewhere in there, that emblem began to take on new significance. And today it represents hatred, loathing, genocide, and some of the darkest days this world has ever seen. But for those people that attended American Fork High School in 1927, I imagine they would have been kind of surprised at my reaction. They wouldn't understand it at all. But the fact is, events in history hand down symbols and emblems and reminders of difficulties that we have experienced as human beings, as nations, as cultures, that are dark and hard to remember. And we had the misfortune of seeing some of those symbols being marched and touted and honored in our modern-day society in the news just a few weeks ago. A couple of weeks ago in Charlottesville, Virginia, a group of self-professed alt-right protesters, many of whom identified themselves as neo-Confederates, 
neo-Nazis, and members of the Ku Klux Klan descended upon Charlottesville, Virginia to protest the removal of a statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee. Many of these protesters were carrying with them some of these symbols that we find so repugnant in society today, most notably that of the Confederate flag and of the Nazi swastika. They had gathered together not just to display these symbols that somehow represented their belief system, but to protest the removal of another emblem that was very important to them. And it's really important to remember, as we are discussing this today, that for these same men that are carrying Confederate flags and swastikas, the statue of General Robert E. Lee meant something deeper than just a simple reminder of the man himself. So this week, we're trying something a little different in Backtrack History. We're going to be talking about the events of Charlottesville, Virginia, but more particularly about the historic contexts that led to the horrible, tragic, violent, and very disturbing events that happened just a couple of weeks ago. We're going to take a look at the ghosts, the scars, and the echoes of the American Civil War that arose in Charlottesville, Virginia. Hey, welcome to Backtrack History. My name is Stu. So, if you can't tell, today is going to be just a little bit of a different show. The idea for this show came last week. I had the opportunity to attend a podcasting conference in Anaheim, California, a thing called the Podcast Movement. It was really an amazing experience. I learned a ton, things that I'm really excited to bring to bear here in this podcast. But the best thing was I was able to meet hundreds and hundreds of other podcasters who were just passionate and helpful and willing to discuss at length some of the issues around podcasting and share some of their ideas. And we got in the habit in the spirit of networking to go up to each other and start sharing our ideas for our own podcasts and kind of giving each other our pitches. Now, I love talking to people. I tend to be a people person. I like talking to strangers and getting in conversations with them. But that ends right where talking about myself begins. I do not like to market myself. I get really uncomfortable even going on Facebook and telling people to listen to my most recent episode or whatever. I don't know why that is, but for some reason, marketing myself and my ideas is about two to three miles outside of my comfort zone. So it doesn't surprise me that about six or seven times when I started giving people my elevator pitch for my podcast, they started to misunderstand what I was saying. Because six or seven times when I told people what my podcast was about, they all said, that is so great. That is such a great idea. And it's so necessary after the events that happened in Charlottesville. Well, I was a little confused by that initially, but eventually it occurred to me that as I was saying, I have a podcast where I talk about an event that happened that week in history. I research it, and then I just tell the story. They thought I was saying I was picking a current event that happened that week and talking about the historic contexts around it. In the wake of the traumatic events that happened in Charlottesville, 
these people thought, what a great idea. And you know what? It is a great idea. I wish I could claim ownership of that idea. It was a complete misunderstanding. If I had the ability to do a show like that, I absolutely would. But it's about three times harder than the show I already do, which is pretty time-consuming. So it's not something I want to pursue on a regular basis. But in regards to Charlottesville, an event that has brought historic significance and conversations about history into light in a way that very few current events have done in recent memory. I thought it actually would be kind of cool to try and talk about some of these things. Now, you may also notice that this is a little bit different than my normal episodes because I am not scripted in this one. This is me just going off of an outline and just kind of speaking from the heart. This is not the way I'm comfortable with doing podcasts. This is not the way I'm used to doing podcasts. And if it goes terribly, I promise it will never happen again. But, you know, here we go. Before I actually delve into the actual topic of Charlottesville and the history around it, I need to give a little bit of a caveat. Neither in this show nor any other episode that I do in Backtrack History do I ever intend to take a political stance. Now, I'm going to have my perspective and that may or may not agree with your perspective, and that's fine, but in no way, shape, or form am I ever intending to use my perspectives on history in the service of some greater political ideology, and certainly not in service of some greater political party. I don't belong to a political party. I love politics, I love discussing politics, but the discussion of politics is so alienating for most people, and it's so polarizing that I feel like it shuts down open dialogue and conversation, and that is about the last thing I want to do and the last goal I have in this podcast. So as we are talking about these current events that do have a political charge around them, and as I'm sharing my perspective that may or may not agree with your own, please know that I am not doing it in any way to support or oppose or voice any kind of strong opinion in the political realm. That is never, ever my intent. That said, let's review some of the rough things that happened a couple weeks ago in Charlottesville. As I said in the intro, a group of alt-right protesters, many of whom identified with the white supremacist ideology of Nazis or the Ku Klux Klan, descended upon Charlottesville, Virginia to protest the removal of the statue of General Lee. The removal of Confederate statues and symbols from public places has been a movement that's been happening increasingly in the past few years across the country. And it has predictably stirred up some anger and resentment from people who feel like these symbols and statues should keep standing. The group of protesters identified themselves as the alt-right movement, a pretty common term in today's parlance. I had never previously associated the alt-right, even if I found them a little bit extreme. I never associated them with white supremacy, neo-Nazis, neo-Confederates. I never really considered them part of that movement. I never connected those two. But represented in this group of protesters were neo-Confederates, neo-Nazis carrying swastikas, and perhaps most damningly, the Ku Klux Klan. They were marching through the streets chanting traditional Nazi slogans like blood and soil, 
chanting anti-Semitic slogans, and as they started to clash with counter-protesters that had also gathered, were spewing invective and racial slur that is pretty disturbing and kind of surprising to hear in modern-day America. Now, of course, there was a group of counter-protesters that had gathered to oppose this alt-right white supremacist group. These counter-protesters were a much larger and much more diverse group than the alt-right that had gathered. Among them were represented people who identify with the Black Lives Matter movement, and also people who identify themselves as Antifa, Antifa. I've never been really clear how to pronounce that. Uh, it stands for anti-fascists. It's not a formal organization, but kind of a social movement and identity that stands to oppose the ideas espoused by Nazis and Ku Klux Klan and this exact kind of people. So obviously, the contention between these two groups was going to be rough. The protesters, many were carrying weapons, fully automatic weapons or handguns. Many of them were carrying riot gear. And the war of words and invective was not going to stay at words. There were constant scuffles that were breaking out and fights and people were throwing things at each other. A man fired his gun into a group of counter-protesters. Luckily, no one was hit or hurt. But the tensions kept growing to the degree that eventually a young man who identified with the protesters, this group of the alt-right, drove his car into a standing group of counter-protesters, injuring 19 and killing one. It was so disturbing to see this play out in modern-day America, for me personally at least, I'm, I'm sure it was for most of you. I cognitively understood that the Ku Klux Klan exists, or that there are people out there who somehow believe that Nazism was a good thing, or that there are people out there that are white supremacists. Cognitively, I understand that those things exist, but they're so difficult to identify with. They're so difficult to kind of empathize. How do you get there? How do you mentally actually believe that there is some inherent superiority in your race because of the color of your skin? It's, it's not only disgusting and repulsive, which obviously it is, but it's, it's weird. It's just stupid and bizarre and backward. It was so disturbing to see it actually play out on a national stage. Now, there are really, really loose numbers about this. We have, actually have no idea. But the Southern Poverty Law Center and some other groups believe that people that belong to neo-Nazi organizations and organizations like the Ku Klux Klan, the numbers vary somewhere between 3,000 and 8,000 nationwide. So this, these are not extremely big groups. This is an incredible minority, right? And, and it's probably misrepresented the extent that this actually exists in our country just by how shocking this was and seeing these images, you might get the idea that this is a huge, huge overarching problem in the United States. And when in fact, well, it is a huge problem and I'm not trying to undermine the extent or the disturbing nature and the dangerous nature of these people and their opinions, it is not at all a mainstream thing. It is so far from being mainstream. The difficult thing and the scary thing is that there were steps, it felt like, in the aftermath that tried to portray it as mainstream and tried to portray either to conservatives that they had a legitimate excuse to be there and that some of their concerns are very legitimate, or to 
people who oppose them, liberals or whatever, you know, left and right, again, I don't really care much. There's a feeling that they're much more prevalent and their voices are much louder and much more threatening than they actually are in reality. I'm going to leave it up to the pundits to delve into that stuff. That is not my intent. But the interesting thing to me was in the aftermath of all of this, some of the historic contexts that were brought up. Because after all, these protesters had gathered together to object to the removal of a statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee. So it is brought up ever since then, all manner of discussion about the Confederacy, about these monuments and the statues and the way that we remember the Civil War. The history nut in me has been really fascinated by these discussions. But one of the things I get frustrated by with history and some of the modern day discussions about it is two things. A, as I said before, people who are using history to back their political ideas because Virtually always, when that is the case, people will twist history and, and leave out any kind of form of nuance. They look at it in a very black and white binary way that is just not in keeping with reality. I've been seeing a lot of that happen. The other thing I've seen is another thing that also bugs me is people taking modern day values, values that I personally hold myself in most cases, and projecting them on the past. It's a very understandable thing, but it also keeps us maybe from fully understanding the past and what actually happened and who these people were. Most interestingly and specifically, it's brought up questions about these statues and monuments that honor the Civil War, specifically honoring the Confederates in the Civil War. There are roughly 700 of these statues and monuments honoring Confederate soldiers or causes particularly. And it brings up these questions. Why were they built? Now, I've got a personal story to share to this end. When I was 10 years old, I was, shocker, in love with history. And in fifth grade, we had started learning all about the Civil War. One weekend, we were visiting my grandparents, and my grandmother asked me what I was studying in school. So I excitedly told her all about the Civil War and the things I was learning. And she seemed really pleased by this. And she said, did you know, Stu? that you have two great-great-great-grandfathers who fought in the Civil War. Well, my 10-year-old self was ecstatic about this, right? I was so excited. I mean, what a personal cool connection to have to this monumental moment in history. And I said, no way, what did they do? What did they fight? She told me one of them was a colonel and one of them was a surgeon and that both of them fought for the Confederacy. Well, the excitement that I had been feeling just flooded out of my body and was replaced with this crestfallen shame. And I looked at her and said, but they were the bad guys. My grandmother slapped me across the face. She pointed right at me and she said, they were not bad men. They were fighting for states' rights. They were fighting to protect their families and their livelihoods. So that was kind of a formative experience in my youth, and it's been coming to mind ever since these events as we're talking about the Civil War. By the way, I in no way want to cast aspersions upon the memory of my grandmother. She was a wonderful, sweet woman who was very passionate about her family and about her heritage. But I've been thinking about this argument that I've been seeing popping up, that the Civil War was not about slavery, it was about states' rights. These echoes of my grandmother's argument that the South were not the bad guys, quote unquote. It brings up the question, was the Civil War about slavery? How 
prevalent was the idea of slavery and race as the Civil War progressed. So as I've been diving into this subject, I've stumbled across a really interesting fact. Many of the people that oppose the removal of statues of the Confederate heroes like Robert E. Lee, and many of the people that have been opposing the removal of the Confederate flag from public places have been arguing that there is an attempt to erase history, that there is an attempt to destroy heritage. It's an interesting thought, and I generally am opposed to the destruction of art and the destruction of things of historic significance, but as I was studying the Civil War and these monuments and statues in particular, some very interesting things came to light. A major paradigm about the Civil War is called the Lost Cause Theory. The Lost Cause Theory effectively states that the South's bargain and this gamble to escape the Union was a lost cause from the beginning, that the North's superior manpower and industrial might was inevitably going to crush this underdog South. And it portrays the South as fighting for a lost cause, and those that fought for the South being martyrs to that cause. It also very much distances the Southern cause from slavery. Instead of enshrining things like states' rights and constitutional issues. And I've had a lot of really interesting and productive discussions about was the Civil War about slavery or was it not? One leading expert believes it is unequivocally about slavery. Dr. Gary Gallagher, who, interestingly enough, teaches at University of Virginia, right where these protests were happening. Now, Gary Gallagher is one of my favorite historians. He's incredibly readable. He is great to listen to. I recently had the chance to listen to a series of lectures he gave with the Great Courses lecture series about the Civil War. He is unequivocally one of the leading experts on the Civil War in America today. And here is a quote that he has from a companion book he included with that series. Quote, the myth of the lost cause was an attempt to find something positive in the failed struggle for independence. The myth held that General Robert E. Lee was the perfect product of the antebellum social system. Lee towered above all other generals in ability and nobility. The myth blamed Northern resources and manpower and fallible Confederates for Southern defeat. Southerners who held this perspective insisted that honor was not forfeited in losing to a vastly superior foe. The myth also played down the importance of slavery as a factor in secession, instead stressing constitutional issues. End quote. Robert E. Lee was the perfect person to embody this paradigm of the lost cause. There are a couple of reasons for this. One, he was an incredibly skilled and popular general in his day. A lot of people think that he was probably the most skilled and competent military commander on either side in the entire war. Certainly, he was by far the best general the South had, with maybe the exception of Stonewall Jackson, who served under him. He had this incredible skill, and he was beloved by both the people in the South and the soldiers that served under him. He was also deeply respected by many of the commanders in the North, including Abraham Lincoln. Adding to this respect and this dignity that Robert E. Lee had, he also personally opposed slavery. Now, Robert E. Lee was not what any of us would 
be able to call an abolitionist. He never called for the end of slavery in general, just himself refused to participate in it. But his personal belief that slavery was wrong is so important to this myth of the lost cause, as Gary Gallagher puts it. Because for Robert E. Lee, if you were to ask him, what are you fighting for? It was demonstrably because he felt like he owed his allegiance to the state of Virginia more than he owed his allegiance to the federal government. So he is the perfect embodiment of this idea. And it is very true that if you were to ask any of the Southerners, what were they fighting for? Most of them likely would not have mentioned slavery. They would have mentioned states' rights and independence. They would have mentioned popular will and self-determination. That was what they were fighting for. To them, slavery may have had something to do with that, but that was their mentality. Interestingly, if you were to ask a northern soldier what they were fighting for, at very least in the first couple of years of the war, not a single one of them would have said slavery. Because while most in the North opposed slavery as a principle, they were not about to go out and risk their lives to overcome it. And remember, there were four slaveholding states, Maryland, Missouri, Delaware, and Kentucky, that ended up staying in the Union while still maintaining their slaves. So obviously, for many of these people at the time, slavery was not their central motivation. If you were to ask anybody in the North why they were fighting, none of them would have said slavery. As I said, they would have said, we are preserving the Union. That's what they were fighting for. So why is it that Gary Gallagher calls this the myth of the lost cause? And why is it that historians now are saying that the Civil War was entirely about slavery when so many people of the time did not think it had anything to do with slavery, at least their own personal motivations? That's well, because their personal motivations didn't have to be about slavery. According to Gary Gallagher, if you were to boil every single stressor that was at play that led to the Civil War, if you were to boil it down to its constituent elements, every single one of them would be about slavery. Let's look at one of these. One of the major points of contention was the question of expansion into the West as the United States was gaining more territories and admitting more states into the Union. California and all of the Western states were, were slowly coming in, either as territories or as states. There was a very, very delicate balance that was being maintained because for every state that was admitted, there were two new senators coming to the Senate. Now, the North had a much higher population than the South did, and so the House of Representatives, which is, of course, determined by population, was overwhelmingly imbalanced in favor of the North. So many more anti-slavery, pro-Northern thinkers were in the House of Representatives than there were Southerners who were pro-slavery. But in the Senate, there was a very delicate, very precarious balance that was being maintained there. And to the South, it was critically important that they maintained that balance in the Senate. And so they did not want to admit any new states as a non-slave state unless they also admitted the state that was a slave state. And so time after time, the admission of new states and territories became a contention. Why? Because of slavery. Another factor that led to the start of the Civil War was the incredible polarization of the party system. 
Now, we today are really familiar with exactly how opposed and polarizing the two parties can be from each other. One of the critical factors, though, was those parties started to draw upon geographical lines. Democrats almost exclusively belonged in the South, and Republicans almost exclusively belonged to the North. The Republicans, by the way, were a brand new party formed in the 1850s. And this rise of the Republican Party, part of whose platform was the restriction of slavery as an institution, and for many Republicans, eventually abolition of slavery altogether, that was a huge threat to Southerners who almost overwhelmingly turned to the rivals of the Republicans, the Democrats. Now, I pause here again to say this is not to speak in favor or against any modern day political party, because if you were trying to compare the Republican Party of the 1850s and the 1860s to the Republican Party today, you're going to have a really tough time drawing any hard comparisons or seeing how that heritage has existed. They're two very, very different entities. The same obviously can be said of the Democrats. The vast majority of African Americans today are Democrat, but Democrats at the time were overwhelmingly Southerners who were pro-slavery. So please do not fall into the trap of trying to compare today's modern Republican and Democratic parties to the Republicans and Democrats of the 1850s and 60s. It simply is not a realistic way of looking at them at all. According to Dr. Gallagher, if you are to take any of these stresses, any of these factors that led to these sectional tensions and eventually to the Civil War, every one of them revolved around slavery. No slavery, no civil war, period. So while it is absolutely an oversimplification to say that the Civil War was about slavery, it is also simultaneously 100% accurate. No, no slavery, no civil war, period. So while people like Robert E. Lee may have been motivated to fight on behalf of their home state and felt like that's where their loyalty lied, the reason that the home state was waging a war and had seceded from the Union was because of questions around slavery. That is incredibly important for us to remember. Interestingly, people who today still promote the idea of the lost cause paradigms of the Civil War, they look at Professor Gallagher and they think, he is trying to change the reality of the situation and change the way we think of history. They contend that the idea of slavery being a primary cause of the Civil War did not rise until like the 1950s, in conjunction with the start of the Civil Rights Movement. They're kind of right, but we'll get back to that in a minute. So let's talk for a moment about the post-war monuments that started to rise up that honored specifically Confederate soldiers and figures. Now, we said earlier, there are roughly 700 of these standing today throughout the country, and it is not just in the South. There are plenty of Confederate monuments standing in Washington, D.C., and in many of the states that were fought for the North or were not states at the time. For the first 30 years following the war, so from 1865 to roughly 1895-ish, almost every Confederate monument or statue commemorating the soldiers and figures of the Civil War were built to remember fallen soldiers, those that had died, and most of those were in cemeteries, a few were in historic battlefields. 
that was overwhelmingly in the first 30 years what was built. Not all that surprising because these are people that are remembering their fallen brothers and fathers. They are people who are trying to preserve that memory of their lost loved ones. In the late 19th century, the relationship between the North and the South began to change. Unfortunately, I cannot go into any kind of intricate detail about some of the tensions and uh, difficulties that followed the Civil War, specifically around Reconstruction and the enmity that was built between the North and the South during that time. But that was the time that the Ku Klux Klan first came into being. But it took a long time for these two former enemies to reintegrate into a cohesive country. Roughly 20 to 30 years after the Civil War ended, a movement began which historians call reconciliation, because historians are really clever at coming up with names. Reconciliation basically was the North's acknowledgement that they needed to kind of patch up their relationship with the South, that there needed to be no more enmity between the children of the soldiers of the Civil War, that they needed to unify and move on. As this happened, the Northerners and the Southerners started to view the Civil War in a very different light, and this is where the Lost Cause Theory began. It gave the South a way to honor those that had sacrificed and fallen in the Civil War, and a way to not feel like those sacrifices and that loss were completely in vain or a waste. They wanted to see them as having fought for good principles and preserving their liberty. They wanted to instill some kind of dignity in the cause of the South during the Civil War. This is exactly where this Lost Cause Theory comes from. So they let the concepts of slavery and emancipation really fade from the memories of the war and held them somewhat apart as a different subject. We're not talking about slavery here. We're talking about the war or my grandmother. It wasn't about slavery. It was about states' rights, right? This was the narrative that came about. There's no wonder that my grandmother absolutely believed this because this was the narrative that was created. This narrative itself was revisionist history, not remembering slavery, because it reframed the history and gave a nobility and a dignity to the South's cause and really dissociated any concerns about race, slavery, or rebellion from the idea of the Civil War. And it's important to note that everybody, including the Northerners, started to adopt this concept. This was, at least elements of it, were what I was personally taught in school. Now, obviously, I thought the South were the bad guys because slavery started coming back into the equation in the 1950s and 60s in conjunction with the civil rights movement. So I got a fair dose of that when I was a kid, but I still had this mentality up until no more than a few months ago that the South was fighting a losing war, that they had no hope to win, that there was some nobility and noble sacrifice involved in it, and that for most of them, it wasn't about slavery. But to put this to rest, whether or not the Civil War was about slavery, we need look no further than the Constitution of the Confederacy, which very, very closely mirrored the Constitution of the United States with a few key differences. One of the differences was a rebalancing to favor states' rights. That is not coincidental, or nor is it surprising. Also, they mentioned slavery directly, which the U.S. Constitution only alludes to in kind of oblique ways and implication rather than directly addressing it. So they guarantee the right of slavery. And then finally, 
Ironically, they forbid any of their states to secede. Those were the three major differences between the United States Constitution and the Constitution of the Confederate States of America. Also, if you take a look at Texas's Declaration of Secession, here is a quote from that. Quote, Texas abandoned her separate national existence and consented to become one of the Confederate states to promote her welfare, ensure domestic tranquility, and secure more substantially the blessings of peace and liberty to her people. She was received into the Confederacy with her own constitution, under the guarantee of the Federal Constitution and the Compact of Annexation, that she should enjoy these blessings. She was received as a Commonwealth holding, maintaining and protecting the institution known as Negro slavery, the servitude of the African to the white race within her limits, a relation that had existed from the first settlement of her wilderness by the white race and which her people intended should exist in all future time. Her institutions and geographical position established the strongest ties between her and the other slaveholding states of the Confederacy." Unquote. So for the individuals like Robert E. Lee or some of the individual soldiers, it would not have occurred to them to consider the Civil War to be about slavery. But for the actual purpose, the actual intent of those that were seceding from the Union and for every stress that led to that secession, it all revolved around slavery. And this is the interesting thing to me. Only one in four Southerners actually owned slaves. Only one in four. Why did the rest fight so diligently to preserve it? Well, they did have a vested interest in maintaining the social order as it was, because if all of these African-American people, I, at the time they called them Negroes, which I have the hardest time bringing myself to say, if all of these slaves were suddenly freed and made, if not equal citizens, at least a huge rung higher than the station they had occupied before the war, all of a sudden they were going to be in competition with the lower rungs of white society. And if they maintained that place as slaves and lesser and property, then the lowest of the low in white Southern society still had some kind of superiority. And this is where the concept of white supremacy comes in. It's this belief that whites are inherently higher up in the hierarchy of importance, in the hierarchy of worth, in what they bring to the world. A white supremacist believes that by virtue of your heritage, by virtue of your culture, and by virtue of your race, yes, the pigmentation of your skin, you are inherently, innately better than. So going back to the monuments for a moment, as I said, for the first 30 years, the monuments being built were simply in memory of those that had fallen during the Civil War. Almost entirely built in cemeteries, some at the battlefields. That started to change in the late 1890s and the early 1900s. And between 1900 and 1930, most of the Confederate monuments, which we know today, which we see standing today, were built between 1900 and 1930. Now, there are a few reasons for this. One is that it coincided with the death of veterans that had fought in the Civil War. And we, we see this phenomenon now with those that are dying who fought in World War II. Many, many local monuments and even national monuments, the World War II monument in Washington, D.C. was only dedicated, what, 10 years ago, something like that. They're going up as we see these veterans dying off. 
And we want to preserve the memory and the nobility of their sacrifice that they committed. And again, as I said, this lost cause tried to instill a sense of purpose in the loss. And so that is where most of these come from. But there was another very interesting correlation with the rise of these monuments. And that was the rise of the Jim Crow laws. I used to think that progress for a minority, specifically blacks in this case, throughout U.S. history was just sort of a, if you were to look at a graph of it, it would be a line. If you could somehow tabulate the quality of life and the status of equality for black Americans, it would just be a line that consistently rose. Maybe not at the rate we would want it to, and maybe it's not as high as we would ever want it to be. And certainly there's progress to be made yet, obviously. But, but my idea was that it started really low with the Civil War, and ever since the Civil War, it's just been in a constant, consistent rise. And it's getting better and better over time. The truth of the matter is, that's never been how civil rights or equality or respect have worked. Truth of the matter is, if you were to try, if you could somehow map qualitatively the quality of life for the American black person throughout history, it does trend upward. If you're to map the trend, it might be that line that I imagine, but the actual line would be a rise and then a fall. It'd be a two steps forward, one step back. Sometimes we'd make a giant leap and then, then there would be a reactionary just hit of regression. It really is not the consistent, constant climb that we would like to imagine it is. This was absolutely true in the South between 1900 and 1930. Because as reconciliation happened and memory of the Civil War began to fade and those old enmities faded, much of the progress that was made on behalf of Black Southerners started to be undone by racist and, yes, white supremacist politicians in the South who rose to power. Northerners either didn't care, didn't notice, or even agreed in some respects with these people that had risen to prominence and did nothing to stop Jim Crow laws, which disenfranchised blacks, which allowed for them to be segregated and effectively kept them from voting entirely, basically stripped them from all rights as an American citizen. Like I said, this is not a show about the Jim Crow laws, and I really wish it could be, but... Uh, <laughs> it's not what we're talking about today. But it is interesting that the Jim Crow laws and this regression in progress for black Americans happened at the same time that these iconic Confederate statues and monuments started to show up, not in battlefields and not in cemeteries, not in historically significant places, but instead on courthouse steps, on the grounds of the state house, on the grounds of the University of Virginia in these very public places. And so the intent of these statues was very, very different than those that had been built in historic places or cemeteries. It was to provide Southern culture with a feeling of heritage, with connection to the Confederate States and the cause of the Confederate States of America. And remember that cause had everything to do with slavery. It really did reinstill these racist values into Southern culture. Some pretty disturbing proof of this came in 1913 when a monument was dedicated on the University of North Carolina's campus, which honored alumni that fought in the war. 
a white industrialist named Julian Carr was speaking at the dedication of this statue, and he praised Confederate soldiers for their defense, quote, of the Anglo-Saxon race during the four years after the war. Their courage and steadfastness saved the very life of the Anglo-Saxon race in the South, unquote. He then bragged about how just a few months after the war, quote, I horsewhipped a Negro wench until her skirts hung in shreds because she had maligned and insulted a Southern lady, end quote. Now, Julian Carr was saying something that wasn't generally being said at other dedications of monuments and statues to the South, because remember, the lost cause tried to distance the South from slavery and from the surrounding issues of racism and white supremacy. We were, the South was trying to distance themselves from that. But another indication that this time period was giving rise to these feelings and these thoughts is the Ku Klux Klan. The Ku Klux Klan originally showed up almost immediately after the Civil War, and it was kind of a guerrilla paramilitary organization that was, maybe today we would call it a terrorist organization that was trying to intimidate not so many blacks, though that was certainly part of their retinue, they were more interested in intimidating, chasing out, and even eliminating, if necessary, white northerners, people they called scalawags and carpetbaggers. People were coming down to the South to try to reform the South, to try to preach equality and progress and northern values to the South. But the Ku Klux Klan, as we know them today, really came into existence and rose to their highest prominence in American history during the 1910s and 20s. That's where the white conical-shaped costumes that we're familiar with came into existence. That's where a national organization came. And they very deliberately decided to infiltrate all levels of American society and government. And they very effectively did this. Unfortunately, this can't be a show on the Ku Klux Klan either, but their rise and their prominence in American life during the 19-teens and 20s is indicative of this trend, especially in the South, in America, of the regression and this retrenchment of white supremacy thought and racist paradigms. It is not coincidental that these Confederate statues and monuments largely rose at that point. We see another correlation in the late 1950s and 60s as the civil rights movement came to fruition, more Confederate monuments started to rise up. Now, that's not coincidental. It's not necessarily causal, but it certainly is correlative, and we can't ignore that fact. So as our discussions about these monuments and statues and the Confederate flag and the roles that they play in our modern-day society and how we remember the Civil War, there are people that defend them, very understandably, and they make this interesting argument. They say the Confederate flag is not about race, it's about heritage. Now, I understand that mentality. And you know what? For sake of argument, let's just go ahead and give them the benefit of the doubt and assume they themselves are not racist. They just very genuinely want to remember the heritage. And so when they see the Confederate flag themselves, they don't think slavery, racism, white supremacy. They themselves simply see heritage. That is where I come from. That is the cause which my family fought for. That might be true for them. But just as I ran across that yearbook 
from my high school in 1927 that had the swastika in its corners. That symbol for them meant nothing but, you know, an aesthetic design choice. There was nothing nefarious about that design for those people in that high school. And for many people in the country today, the Confederate flag may not hold anything nefarious, may not symbolize anything racist to them. But here's the thing about emblems and symbols. They're not just an individual relationship. They are collectively decided upon by cultural memory and cultural consent. This is a very common human tendency. We collectively put significance into symbols and emblems. So if you see a cross, you know what that means and you know what that represents. And you have your own personal relationship with that emblem, but there is also a collective understanding. This is Christianity. So when you see a Star of David, whether or not you have your own personal relationship or judgments about what it represents, collectively, that represents Judaism. And collectively, there generally isn't a value judgment placed upon that. Not good, not bad, just Judaism. Shout out to my Jewish friend Mo in New Jersey, whom I love and I think is the best human being on earth. There are, though, symbols like the swastika, and yes, like the stars and bars from the Confederate States of America, that we look at and we collectively put a value judgment upon. And whether or not you share that value judgment, you have to acknowledge that the rest of the country and the rest of the society around you does. Say you grew up and you knew nothing about the Nazi flag and the swastika, and you just thought it was the coolest symbol ever. So you decide to wear it on a t-shirt one day. You see it and you think, what a cool design. You wear it on a t-shirt. Is it wrong that people get frustrated and angry and ask you to take it off or even threaten to have you take it off? Is it wrong for them? Is, are they at fault in that scenario? Likewise, can you fault people when they look at somebody who flies a Confederate flag in the most innocuous way ever and say, take that flag down, that flag represents racism and white supremacy. Can you fault those people? Because collectively, that is what that represents. Interestingly, statue of Robert E. Lee has come to be emblematic, not just of Southern heritage values and not just of history. And as a history nerd, I would love it if that were the case. It is only up there for educational purposes, for remembering what happened. Instead, as is demonstrated so profoundly by the presence of Nazis and neo-Confederates and Ku Klux Klan members, it has come to represent something much more nefarious, much more dark and much more damaging to American culture. Yes, damaging enough that it literally ripped us in two and almost spelled the end of our country as it existed. So these things do stand for racism, they do stand for white supremacy, even if they don't personally represent that to you. And that's important to remember as we consider what to do with these things. Now, here's my personal opinion. And again, this is not in service of any kind of political ideology. I can't stress that enough. I do feel like if these statues and monuments serve some kind of historic significance, so those that are, on, that are present in battlefields like Gettysburg or Antietam, those that still exist within cemeteries, remembering the men who died. 
I feel like it's very important for us culturally and for our heritage that we do maintain those, we do remember those, and we do utilize them for their intended purpose, which is to honor the history and the memory of what happened. However, so many of these statues and monuments, specifically the ones in very, very public places, were not built necessarily with that intent, but rather to build Southerners' connection to the heritage of the Confederacy and the values it espoused. If that is the case, and it obviously is the case for those white supremacist alt-right persons who marched in Virginia, then they have no place in our public society. They have no place in our culture. They need to be removed because I will share this opinion. I'm a passionate defender of First Amendment rights, our right to speak anything that we believe and anything we want. Passionately, passionately defend that. And I'm going to exercise mine to say that every word that comes out of the mouth of a man or woman who believes that their race is inherently, innately better than any others is evil, is damaging, is dangerous. One of the things I love most about history is that history builds empathy more than almost any other subject. If you are studying history correctly, you can connect with the human beings that lived and breathed and experienced these battles and the fear and the adrenaline and the, the burning of the cause in their hearts. You understand where they come from. You understand them. And even if you don't agree with them, even if you think some of their actions are despicable, you can understand who they were and understand how they felt. Those men and women, though I never saw a single woman among them, but there might have been some, I don't know. Those persons that marched with the alt-right protesters do not know history. They do not know empathy. If they did, there would be no way for them to believe that they are inherently better than another race. Maybe this is why I feel like history is such a critical subject for us to study, for us to understand. If you understand history, you can't look down on differences. You honor them. You celebrate them. Finally, I'd like to conclude with just one more thought. 54 years ago today, a man stood on the steps of the Abraham Lincoln Memorial and gave what was ultimately one of the single most famous and influential speeches in American history. Here's a clip. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Just as I have a dream My four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. Disturbing as the events that happened in Charlottesville were and are, disturbing as it is to see white supremacy and racism and hatred play out in such a devastating way in our modern society, and as hard as it is to know that we have not reached that dream of Dr. King. 
it is nice to look where we are now and compare it to 1963 when he gave that speech or compare it to 1865 when the Civil War ended and see just how much progress we have made. And as we continue to lurch forward as an imperfect people, as an imperfect country, we are getting closer to realizing the dream of that man. And that's nice to remember in the face of such troubling moments. Thanks for listening. Hey everybody, this is Stu. Thank you so much for listening today. As I said, this is not my usual show. Please let me know what you think. I'm finding that going off the cuff and going off of a an outline is much more difficult than going off of a script and actually doesn't save me as near as much time as I thought it might. So I may not do this again in the future, but I did want to discuss this subject and put something out for you this week. As always, if you have any questions, comments, requests, critiques, please feel free to send them to me at stu at backtrackhistory.com. Please feel free to visit our website at backtrackhistory.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash backtrackhistory. We'd love to hear from you. And if you have any requests, please feel free to send them my way as well. I'm excited to incorporate a lot of the things that I learned at Podcast Movement last week and am really excited to bring some new stories and new insights to you next week. We'll see you then.